Welcome to episode 58 of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Elaine Quilici, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine and your podcast host. Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. On this week's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jonathan Gertler, CEO of Back Bay Life Science Advisors, and Dr. Stephen Galdi, Managing Director of Strategy Consulting for Back Bay. Jonathan and Steve talk about the new gene therapy regulations recently put forth by FDA and what companies can expect as a result. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At TrueSterum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. TrueSterum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at TrueSterumNTWK.com. Hello, podcasters. I'll be interviewing Dr. Jonathan Gertler, CEO of Back Bay Life Science Advisors, and Dr. Stephen Galdi, Managing Director of Strategy Consulting for Back Bay. They're here to talk about the new guidelines set forth by FDA in regard to gene therapy and what those new parameters mean for pharma and biotech. Thanks for joining us today, Jonathan and Steve. Pleasure to be here. Our pleasure. So Steve, last month, FDA released some new gene therapy policies. What is the gene therapy space like currently, and why do you think FDA did this now? Well, I think the agency is simply sort of responding to the incredible growth that is seen in in all of these sort of novel technologies, and that includes the likes of gene therapy, gene editing, RNA and DNA technologies. I mean, the, the space has evolved from, you know, what, 10, 15 years ago was kind of an academic led endeavor to what is now probably the arguably the most highly sophisticated and technologically advanced sector. And now, you know, all of the world's biggest companies are sort of involved to one extent or another. To date, you know, the FDA has only really approved a handful of these therapies, but even by its own estimates, they're identified more than 900 products that are advancing to and through the clinic. So I think really with this kind of volume and this level of technical complexity that comes with a lot of these products, It was time for some guidance for companies both to make it clearer about what is going to be required for them in terms of regulatory evaluation. But I also think, you know, from an agency point of view, it really does standardize and streamline the packages. And hopefully that allows them to streamline the process and allowing them to sort of efficiently cope with the expected volume of products that they are due to evaluate. Is this clarification something that was needed and welcome in the gene therapy space? Or does it create more questions and complications for companies now? Oh, I, I definitely think it's very welcome. Interactions with the agency are obviously a critical part of taking products forward. Uh, and this guidance really will give greater clarity on the types of data the agency is looking for the companies to provide and really about the timing of when they would like to see it. This is really important when looking at sort of bridging the preclinical animal work to other sort of non-clinical work that may be required when the product moves through clinical development. I think a particular note is, you know, the agency has provided specific preclinical and clinical guidance for three areas. So hemophilia, retinal disease, and rare disease. Now, those account for a huge chunk of what is in development at the moment. 
And I think what that will really help is sort of companies and investors to better estimate the time and cost associated with everything from putting together the preclinical package all the way through to the, the sort of post-marketing commitments. Jonathan, what impact do you think these policies have on competition and the overall pharma space? Let me address the overall pharma space first, if I might, and then I'll come back to specific intercompany competition. With all of the political heat for the pharma space, and that has to do with, with pricing and, and associated issues and availability and access, at the end of the day, I still think the pharma space is viewed as providing those aspects of future and current medical care that are critical to our own societies and the world societies advance. And so thus anything that you do that creates more opportunity for patient care, which at the end of the day should really be the differentiator among companies, is welcome. And I think it's welcomed by the pharma space and ultimately it's welcomed by society. So specifically with regard to these policies, if you think about gene therapy, the concern has always been in orphan disease, and that's where most gene therapy is targeted, that once somebody has a foothold as an orphan disease, it really blocks others from entering. Well, gene therapy is comprised of many disparate technologies, and whether it's a difference in the vector, difference in the transgene, a difference in delivery, the agency's guidelines renders those approaches different products. And thus, you know, say in the United States, you have multiple potential different gene therapies with different vectors, but targeting the same disease. This type of guideline, which really allows more products to advance, and this will relate back to the competition question as well, means that for each patient, even for those with very specific rare diseases, where the epidemiology does not show a great number of patients, the therapies can be tailored. And so thus what you're doing with these guidelines is you're creating opportunities for companies to enter with very specific solutions, even if um, the disease is very limited in number, but where different solutions are needed to effectively treat the patient population. From a competitive perspective, what these do is they take out speculation and guesswork. So when you have clear regulatory guidelines, clear manufacturing guidelines, et cetera, it makes the issue not around the ability to get around a lack of precedent in the regulatory space, but it makes the issue about your technology and your execution. And therefore it will enhance competition, but it enhances competition while still creating opportunity. And the final common pathway will be benefit to patient care. That's a huge impact for both companies and also clearly for the pharma space and clearly for our society. So how will these new rules affect financial pathways? I'm thinking investments, partnerships and collaborations for biotech and pharma? You know, it's interesting. At BackBay, we spend a good deal of time working with biotech and pharma companies, really helping them strategically position their indication, prioritization, and their technology and determining the best path forward. Opening up the ability to tackle the same disease as other companies and still being able to differentiate your role, as I was just talking about, really makes for a very important competitive advantage for numerous companies. And that inevitably is going to translate into partnership. The R&D pipeline for pharma has been biotech. Pharma increasingly looks like biotech, but biotech is also comprised of early stage companies, young companies, venture-backed companies that can take truly differentiated approaches to new technology development. 
the more they're able to do that and the more freedom of movement there is because of these guidelines and the regulatory pathways that are um, determined, it allows for more attractive collaborations with pharma, which indeed lends itself to then licensing, partnering, and even M&A. So I think from that perspective, it's a boon for the early stage biotech, larger biotech pharma interaction because their lifeblood is that type of transactional interaction predicated on sound strategic choices along the way. From an investment perspective, and this can be internal investment from a company perspective, it can be external investment from venture or public investors or the investment that you get in a licensing and partnership arrangement, the more you have consistency, the more you have predictability in the pathways, the more you can determine timelines, cost, removal of surprise elements and dealing with the FDA, establishing early precedents, that allows for more rational investment decision-making using investment as a broadly based term based on really the underpinning of science, technology, indication choice, and clinical and commercial opportunity. So although the downside always when you have increased regulatory oversight is the potential for bureaucracy looming its sometimes ugly head, but its huge upside is all that consistency and predictability which it brings to bear on the problems we're all trying to solve. Steve, do you have any advice for pharma leaders on how to navigate these policies? I think first and foremost, we would always advise, you know, early and routine interaction with the agency as the you know, program moves forward. As with all FDA guidance, the word should is explicitly highlighted as meaning a recommendation. I mean, that said, you know, now that this, these guidelines are in place, I think there would need to be a very strong rationale as to why a particular company was not following them. And to just to Jonathan's point, we work with a lot of small companies, a lot of companies at the sort of seed and, and even pre-seed stage sometimes. And for them, you know, it's the idea that oh, we don't need to go forward. We don't need to interact with the agency yet. We plenty of time for that. I think what is increasingly clear, particularly in this space, is that sort of early interaction, early buy-in from the agency and early information from the agency about what they are really going to see, need to see in that preclinical package just provides a lot more clarity. So if you're a small company going out, you at least know what you're going to have to do. It helps inform the amount you're going to have to raise. It gives the investors a lot more understanding on how the proceeds are going to be used and how you're going to be able to take it forward. And it doesn't necessarily de-risk the asset, but it at least gives a really clear framework about what is going to be required and what the costs are going to be. I think in addition to that, what is also clear in the guidance, particularly for those areas, you know, the rare disease and hemophilia and, and retinal disease, is again something that in working with small companies a lot over the years, we see to a greater and lesser extent. And, and really that is an understanding of the indication, a full understanding of the indication that they're going into. And I think as part of this, really what is becoming clear in the guidelines here is that FDA wants the companies to have a very good understanding of where this asset is going to fit, how it's going to be sort of compared against a standard of care, in the development plan, what are the endpoints going to be for this? And, you know, that's all important. It's not usually that important in the preclinical stage. However, a lot of these guidelines are now asking, because these are new technologies and we're not entirely sure 
how once under broad usage they're going to behave, what the agency is really asking for is a much broader preclinical package using the product that they expect to market to be able to draw correlation between what they saw in the preclinical models and what they see in the, the sort of clinical trials. So that could be, you know, as an example, in some cases, clinical trial bar biomarkers need to have clear support, not just from the literature, which is more typical the way things are, but now they want generation of that specific data around that specific biomarker, again, as I said, with the clinical trial product, and that's in the preclinical models so that they can correlate those findings, and those findings may be years off. So it requires a certain amount of preparation, I think maybe a little bit more preparation than is typical for the, you know, the small molecule, molecule and biologic world that we've seen previously. Jonathan, how do you think policymakers should approach the big picture of gene therapy moving forward? I think there, there's a specific gene therapy answer, and then there's the, the, broader, the broader answer about what this type of policy can bring to us, not just as an industry, but as a society. The gene therapy answer is that more, even more quickly than Silicon Valley claimed its chips changed, I guess Moore's law, that our science is evolving at an extraordinary pace. In the years since I was starting my medical education, which was a number of decades ago, the acceleration in our biologic understanding is extraordinary. When I was actually in medical school, I think there were six orphan diseases. I think there are now 6,000 or more orphan diseases that have been identified. So we have to, as a regulatory body and as an industry, be able to rapidly change as our technology evolves. And one of our, I think, Achilles heels in general is that technology tends to evolve more rapidly than our policy and our regulatory policies and you know, even our, our view of how that technology fits in society can change. So I think approaching this gene therapy as a space means that having set these guidelines, they still need to be extraordinarily careful about paying attention to technology evolution and its implications for new policies. I think above and beyond that, putting these types of policies in place for gene therapy can help, and Steve was starting to speak to this as well, to help us think about established endpoints and processes for non-gene therapies, for other ways in which we evolve pharmaceuticals, biotechnology products, and frankly, even going beyond medical devices, medical technologies, etc. The more clarity we have, the better we can do. The more clarity we have, greater economic efficiency can be brought into a system. Unnecessary technologies can be pushed aside. Extremely important ones can be accelerated. That creates a greater economic efficiency, which can translate into a greater societal ability to absorb the costs of all of these technologies, which we all want, but may be increasingly difficult to pay for in an ever burdened healthcare system. So if we can look at this process of new guidelines and its impact, continually evolve, continually change, and think about taking those types of efficiencies and guidelines and continuing to move them forward for other spaces, I think that'll be a huge victory for our industry in general. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Jonathan and Steve. I really appreciate you sharing your insights about FDA's new guidelines for gene therapy and how they're going to affect companies moving forward. It's our pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for including us.
if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At TrueSerum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truesterumntwk.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from pharma execs. Hi, I'm Jonathan Girdler, the founder and CEO of Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My leadership tip stems from a question I was once asked. A colleague who was starting a company once came up to me and said, I want to be just like you. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, I want to just work for myself. And hence my leadership tip. I said to him, I don't work for myself. I've started a number of companies. I work for the people that I've invited into my company as ostensibly my employees, but that's who I'm responsible to. As an entrepreneur, as a leader, if you never forget that you work for the people that are supporting you, that you're giving them the best chance to excel and succeed, and you lead from the front in that regard, your businesses will thrive. Hi, I'm Stephen Goldie, Managing Director of Back Bay Life Science Advisors. And as I'm not sure I can top the previous leadership tip, I'll go with one uh, strategy tip that we've picked up at Back Bay over the years. I think it's important to always let the data drive the strategy, but you also have to design a strategy that means you can use the data in multiple ways so that you leave yourself the optionality to pivot if necessary. As a special bonus this week, we have some additional leadership advice from one of our 2020 Emerging Pharma Leaders. Here's a tip from Dr. Anita Gupta, Senior Vice President of Medical Strategy and Government Affairs at Heron Therapeutics. Giving people the power to believe, um, you know, is really important. I think that there's a lot of, you know, uncertainty in future, you know, and especially in drug development. And I think, you know, people need to know that there is a purpose, um, that there is a future, there's a possibility, and there's hope. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's PharmaExec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the PharmaExec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at PharmaExec.com, on Twitter at PharmaExec, on Instagram at PharmaExecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of PharmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mjhlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mjhlifesciences.com. 